Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The producers of this podcast recognize the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. And the firm line that I always hold, and I've had to do a lot of thinking about this, is that your bad behaviour can't be excused by trauma. Because if you have a trauma history, then it's really your you know, responsibility. Yeah. And I say this gently because this is a hard one to make sure that the things that have happened to you aren't allowed to make you hurt other people. There's things in life that are really tricky to talk about. These are often topics we don't want to engage with because they seem just too hard and too big to tackle. Our guest for this episode is someone we've spoken to before, And we know from the feedback to the episodes that what she has to share is really important. Dr. Ahona Guha is a forensic and clinical psychologist in Melbourne who works in the spaces of treatment that are difficult. And this is putting it mildly. She works with people in jail, people who hurt others, including sex offenders, stalkers and bullies, and those who are victimised, abused and traumatised by these kinds of behaviours. Ahona is drawn on this, including her own living experience, for her first book, Reclaim, Understanding Complex Trauma and Those Who Abuse. I think a lot of us want to know why people act in ways that harm and victimise others. And Ahona explores questions like, why are psychological abuse and coercive control so difficult to spot? What kinds of behaviours should we see as red flags? And what defines complex trauma? I know I had a lot of questions for Hona, as did Michelle, including when we talk about narcissism, what does this exactly mean? As always, Michelle and I had a really fascinating chat with Ahona, and I think that you're going to find a lot of this useful. Here's Dr. Ahona Guha.
So why did you decide to write this book? Look, this is going to go back to the pandemic. (laughs) Sorry to mention the P word. But largely speaking, over the pandemic, I had lots of spare time and I used to write back before I became a psychologist. And then I think my nine years of study overall drilled that out of me. And I suddenly found myself with more free time. I couldn't sleep and started to write thinking about what kind of hobbies I'd like to build on a little bit more. And then I think around March 2021, that was when Grace Tame first entered the public scene and I do a lot of trauma work with patients and we were having a lot of conversations about how the media speaks about trauma and how it's presented on social media and how that can be really quite different to what we see clinically. And it struck me that there was quite a gap in the field, especially in the realms of complex trauma, especially in terms of writing by people stop, who actually do the on, work on a daily basis. So what were your patients saying to you about yeah. Grace Tame, about um, the way that her actions and her words were being interpreted yeah, by yeah. the public and by the media and how they were interpreting them? I think... I have a lot of patients who've experienced sexual assault, many of whom have never spoken to anyone about it, most of whom haven't reported it to the police either. So at the time that Grace Tame came out a little bit more publicly with her story, there were a couple of other high-profile cases as well, including an alleged rape committed by a former minister, um, and I think Brittany Higgins, who who we all know about. My patients were very distressed by all of the media commentary because there was a lot of anger, I think, directed by people toward some of these women. There was a sense that, well, if people didn't didn't believe them, they aren't going to believe me. Lots of my clients, family and friends were saying relatively unthinking things about we can't believe people if they if they don't complain right after. Why didn't she go to the police? I think about Grace Tame, people were saying she's too angry and she's unlikable. And so we don't believe her. Um, there was a lot of really nasty social media commentary, I think, directed at these at these people. And it was a difficult conversation to have because here I was talking to clients, working them through the trauma recovery process, talking about how it wasn't their fault. There isn't any way to actually predict that this is going to happen. You often can't protect yourself. And they were really getting a barrage of messages saying saying quite the opposite. So it was a very fraught time and I think a very difficult time for anyone who worked in the trauma field and for people who've been traumatized. So all of that together made me go, well, I should start to write about something I know a lot about and something I've actually incorporated into my study and my own doctoral research because it feels like there's a big gap in the field and a big gap in the field by people who just don't want to make stuff up to make money, which I see a lot of happening on social media. Mm. But but actually wanting to make a difference and wanting to get some good clinical information out there. You wrote something important about obviously the media and how I guess they elevate and and people like Grace Tame should be elevated, but, you know, there's a lot of backlash from people I've heard like, oh, you know, they're celebrities and that's not them doing no. that and, and that we expect too much. Absolutely. Of And I, I see you talk about that on social media because I think I can't imagine any of these women would want the no. public scrutiny. You know, Rosie Batty, Grace Tame, exactly. Brittany Higgins, I mean. I always feel about Brittany Higgins in particular that she was on such a an exciting career trajectory mm. and now I wonder how she could work again or certainly pick mm. up the threads of that 
trajectory that she was on. And maybe I'm wrong about that and I don't, who knows what her future holds, but. Look, I think, again, I've had lots of clients on similar trajectories who are doing really amazing things Mm. and then this awful assault happens or a range of things happen and their life for a while falls apart. I think my task and what I encourage people to to do, and I know that this is a really hard ask, is to actually be thinking about what their life can look like after the trauma. And that's not going to be the same life, mm. but, I would, but I would hope that people can put the pieces of the puzzle back together, even if it starts to form a different pattern. But the, the trauma has been compounded in her situation by absolutely, the media. Yeah, absolutely, by the Screening, media, yeah. the trials. Mm. So a range of people have let her down. And what I see with a lot of people who have lived experience and put themselves into the public eye, they're often put on a pedestal and then they're ripped down very, very quickly. So they're idealized by some people, ripped down by others. But just as quickly, I think if people put a step out of line, the people who are, who are idealizing will then very, very quickly move into attack mode. So it's, I think, a very fraught space to be because as a trauma survivor, your threat perception is really high anyway. Mm. And you've often got a lot of defectiveness and shame. And I think it's really, really psychologically difficult. Mm. I really, I really think the way, look, media all over the world is probably like this, but the Australian media, they just want neatly packaged things. They yeah. want it neatly packaged, the perfect victim, so to exactly. speak. And yeah. They're so basic. It's like with Brittany Higgins, it would have been overwhelming to have so much support, so much attention, and then it starts to go bad. And then the people who are around you go and, you know, who's who's helping her to understand what's happening? I just think people have got, they didn't have Brittany's interests at heart. That's what I believe. Yeah. That's look, my opinion. I think the question of who's on your side is a really important and a really interesting one because always in these cases people have their own vested interests so the media want to sell stories certain people are going to want to prosecute others are going to want to defend and I think when you enter a situation like this whether that's a court process or whether some other form of restorative justice process or just really processing it's really important to know that you've got people on your side people in your corner people like your psychologist who have your best interests at heart and It's tricky to find that, I think, when you're in the public eye and when so many people want different things from you. And certainly something that I'm really cautious of as a psychologist and someone who has a very, very tiny public following of what people are are asking of me and what their hidden agenda might be. And you talk about the, um, I can't remember the term you use, but it's almost very light, little poppy kind of things about trauma, things about well, ADHD or autism. It's like, hey, it's so funny when we lose stuff. It does seem problematic. Oh, I, that kind of clickbaity. Yeah, you, that, you've mentioned yeah. it a few times. I just was curious yeah. about that because I yeah. think that can be quite triggering for people but also make people not understand as well. I think, yeah, I talk about that in the first chapter of my book and it felt really important for me to address some of the social media misconceptions about trauma because a lot of people have jumped onto the trauma bandwagon because it sells. And that charge might also maybe be, you know, levied against me. The differences have done a lot of study around this and this is this is part of what I what I train in. Not only do you think it sells, but also can it be used to excuse it can be our yeah poor behavior sometimes. A- I've got trauma. Absolutely. So I think the reason trauma sells is because there's a lot of trauma 
around in the world. I think we have very traumatised societies. Like, honestly, you know, the pandemic the has been crisis. traumatic for a but lot of us. But also just how we, how we treat each other. Mm-hmm. I think we treat each other very poorly. There is a lot of trauma because historically we haven't recognised things like intimate partner violence and sexual assault. So we have entire well, generations genocide. which are traumatised. Absolutely. You know? Genocide. Mm. Racism. Mm. And we and we can't look at trauma without, without looking at some of these broader social forces. So I think we have a traumatized society, but I think sometimes trauma can be a way of maybe externalizing things. So it isn't about me. So this thing happened to me. So maybe I don't need to fix it sometimes. Or if I behave a certain way, it's because of my trauma history. And I see this a lot in the forensic world. And so that's that's okay. And the firm line that I always hold, and I've had to do a lot of thinking about this, is that your bad behavior can't be excused by by trauma because if you have a trauma history then it's really your you know responsibility yeah. and i say this gently because this is a hard one to make sure that the things that have happened to you aren't allowed to to make you hurt other people mm. i see how that can be really confusing and confronting because if someone's done something to you or something's happened to you and it wasn't your fault i, I imagine i'd feel so angry yeah, yeah. But I guess how do you move through that? Also, sometimes it, it's not easy to recognize when you're acting poorly. Absolutely. As, as Absolutely. a trauma response. That's yeah. what I personally Agreed. struggle with yeah. is realizing, oh, and why look, am I so angry yeah. about this thing? Because it's actually not directly related yeah. to. That's the traumatic. a big part of my yeah. work. So it's mm. not as though someone experiences a trauma and then directly because of the trauma, yeah. they'll, they'll go out and hurt other people. It's often how the trauma shapes how they think about the world, yeah. how they feel the need to be self-protective, how they process anger, how they sometimes feel quite, quite defensive maybe. For lots of people, and I think, you know, you talk about being angry, that's a really normal response though, and that's not not necessarily harmful. So when I say harmful, I'm talking about things like bullying someone, stalking someone, assaulting someone, sexually assaulting someone. These are all behaviours that, that people sometimes try to pin on trauma. And while a trauma history might have changed the way a person functions within the world, maybe making it more likely that they're going to harm other people, I think fundamentally when I'm looking at that category of behaviours, it's really important for a person to know, well, lots of people who have trauma don't do that. So there's something else happening here. Well, that's one of that's a really great place to springboard, I think, from because so often we have people say to us, um, listeners say, hey, you're excusing this person, yeah. this offender, yeah. Um, because of their trauma, because yeah. of this thing that happened to them. And lots of people have had things like that happen to them and they haven't grown up to become and that's violent. True. And that's true. My stance is that this isn't a neat question. I think lots of people have trauma happen and they don't go on to hurt other people. That's well and truly established and that's why trauma is not an excuse. You can't hurt people and say, I did it. I did it because of my trauma and I'm not going to take responsibility. Trauma can be one of the factors, though, because it does change at times how a person thinks, feels, responds to the world. And it might drive them down down some difficult pathways. So lots of the offenders I work with have engaged in things like early school disengagement. You know, they kind of drop out at year eight or year nine. They start using substances and they often grow up in very, very difficult families as well. And I think the difference I see between people who have a trauma history and don't hurt other people and those who 
do have a trauma history but going to hurt is the external stuff around them. So whether they finished school, whether they were able to get a good job, whether they fell into a safe relationship, whether they started using substances or not. And it's, and it's often those things which allow a person to actually form a good life and to have a sense of safety. So it's simple things, you know, thinking about the things that have helped some of my clients. It's been simple things like a teacher who mm. intervened at a certain point in time, child protection intervention, which then got, got someone extra support. It could also be temperament. And I talk a little bit about the whole bio, biopsychosocial model, which is how the biological, psychological and the social intervene or you know, really interact together. So I think that there's a range of factors that mean that a person's going to harm and or might be at risk of harming. And when I work with people, I'm looking at at a whole whole range of factors. Trauma is one of them, and trauma might might influence a person to harm someone else. But it's never I'd never write a report saying yes, this person's offended because of their trauma history. That there'd, there'd be a whole kind of formulation around that. What other things are you looking for? Because I know yeah. we're going to talk about vicarious trauma later, but, you know, what really struck me is you said that for people like yourself who work in this field, you feel like if you miss something, then that could mean mm. someone goes out and rapes or murders yeah. someone. You know, child protection workers, those That's big cases, for child protection. they oh just get gosh. blamed and it's yeah. like and They get dragged to the courts. And they get dragged to the scary. media. It really scary. is. I'm quite scaffolded and really protected from from that, I think, because we have a strong ethos in psychology, especially adult work, that we can do what we can do and we do do, do our best. Like we, we do so much work behind the scenes that people will never know about, but it's ultimately up to the client to make their choices as well. So if I'm working really hard with an offender, but they choose to go out to hurt someone, that's essentially their choice. And I and the police and the courts, we can do everything we can to protect people and prevent that. That's not always going to be enough. It is something that weighs on my mind, I think, especially because I work in the community forensic field where lots of people are actually out in the community. So there's a lot more risk. Prison is actually easier because your clients are very contained there. And so you walk away knowing that they're staff. But yeah, it's definitely something that I carry <laughs> with me. I guess it begs the obvious question. Have you ever had a situation or a, um, a patient that has offended while you've been working with them? Um, probably yes. That you know of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. Um, probably yes. Nothing huge that jumps to mind. Nothing where someone was seriously hurt. Mm -hmm. But there have definitely been times when people have re-offended. And usually that's been minor enough that we can talk about it and talk about what led up to it and maybe use it as a bit of a learning opportunity. And sometimes it does actually increase motivation because a lot of my clients come to see me because they're forced to. And mm. most people believe that they're never going to offend again and that they aren't ever, ever going to hurt someone else again. So it can be a bit of a wake up call when they do actually get in trouble again. And I can use that to say, well, you know, kind of sounds like we need to do some more work here. Yeah. It strikes me as um, for some people, it would be like an addiction that it's not that easy to not offend. Maybe they might think it is as in, yeah. no, I can just not do I it I just again. don't do it. I can just stop. Yeah. It's like I relationship mean, um, yeah. patterns where you've had a relationship. Mm. Like, I'm never going to do that again. Mm, I'm yeah. never going to put up with that again. But as you allude to, or you write yeah. about in the book, there's dynamics around all that too. Look, I think, it's, I think why people offend is really complex. And I talk a lot about it in terms of, um, I, I think in chapters five, six and seven, where I, where I really look at what makes a person offend and how we can 
protect ourselves from more harmful people. We often think that it's a choice, and I see this a lot in certain fields like the family violence field where people say perpetration's a choice and it's and it's a man's choice to inflict violence. And I'm not saying that it's not a choice. It certainly is. But it's maybe one of very few choices a person has and maybe the behavior is so conditioned or can feel so uncontrollable sometimes, especially if you're talking about the more reactive or more expressive, you know, violence where you where you fly off the handle that it almost doesn't feel like a choice to them and that there's a lot of things they have to do to actually change the behavior. And that can be hard work. I mean, thinking about, you know, for me, if I were to start to change my food habits, that can be really hard. Mm. So not to sort of talk down the severity of, of offending because it is very serious and we do a lot of work to stop it, but it's actually really hard for the people involved at, at times to change their behaviours. Mm. Well, we like quick things in life, don't we? Yeah. And we like black I- and white. And I have clients come in to see me, whether it's private practice or forensic work, and say, give me give me skills. <laughs> yes. How do give I me strategies. This? People yeah. are like, I don't want to do years of counselling. Yeah. Yeah. I want you to just tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. Yeah, in the moment. And that's hard, and mm. especially because... I often find that people who come who come to therapy with histories of trauma or longer standing difficulties, it's often really about understanding that first and looking at the broader patterns, not just here you go, go go into your breathing and it's going to be fine. And <laughs> you know, breathing is is a part of Write it. A gratitude list, it'll all be good. You, yes, yeah, yeah, get your gratitude journal. Go and go and get a dog. What? Uh, <laughs> um, you talk about the different kinds of trauma as well. And about the fact that complex trauma is a thing. It's it's a it's a specific thing. You can't really diagnose yourself with it. Or what do you consider to be tr- complex trauma? So complex trauma is a bit different to what I'd call a single incident trauma. So a single incident trauma would be something like a car crash. Um, it could it could also be more interpersonal trauma. So uh, hey, you know, sexual assault could be a single event trauma. When we are talking about complex trauma, we are talking about things that are often chronic and cumulative, so things that happen repeatedly. That could be child sex abuse, which is often multiple acts. It could be things like bullying. Could be could be emotional neglect. Could be could be physical violence. Um, so often it's very very relational, and that's one of the differences between single event trauma, which is often accidental, so car crash. Natural disasters, a complex trauma happens within the bounds of relationships. And that's why I tend to use the word complex trauma or you know, relational trauma. And they can be smaller events, but ones that, that just happen over, over time. So when you're walking around with this combination of factors and say you don't know, you don't yeah, realise yeah. because that's how you've grown up and that's, yeah. you know, we think that's normal or whatever. We think we're a normal person reasonably. How does that affect our relationships as an yeah. adult and how we function with other people in workplaces, socially? Yeah. Look, there's so many patterns. And I think, you know, to come back to the question you asked earlier, why I struggle with the social media depictions of trauma, it's because they're often really simplistic. Yeah. So Everyone's they, a narcissist, by yeah, the way. Yeah, exactly. Everyone who you, annoys us. I, my daughter called me a narcissist the other yeah. day. Did you ask her to clean her room? Uh, yeah. <laughs> how dare yeah. you? Um, how do, and also equally, though, I, use, I do use the word gaslighting and I loved how you mm. put the explanation because my husband's like 
people use the word gaslighting. They don't get it. And he explained to the girls about that thing. But the girls are like, are you trying to gaslight me? <laughs> By explaining gaslighting. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, look, I think and the reason I I have opposition to that, you know, very, very simplistic, if you're, if you're a perfectionistic person, then you have trauma, is because, yes, you might have a trauma history, but there can also be a range of other things driving that. And we also know that people who have a history of complex trauma can actually have a range of difficulties. So the ones I commonly see, perfectionism is certainly one of them because if you've grown up with people telling you that you aren't good enough and if you're feeling bad about yourself, the way to make sure you don't get in trouble is really by doing the best you can do. Great anxiety, lots and lots of issues with mood, so low mood, fluctuating mood, numbness, dissociation, flatness. Substance use is really common because often complex trauma comes with some really difficult emotions that are that are quite hard to manage and a lot of emotional ups and downs. So people start to use substances as a way of regulating that. The other things I talk about, the darker patterns are self-harm. Self-harm is really common. People who experience ongoing or very intermittent suicidal ideation because the world just feels so hard. Great anxiety because your threat perceptions heighten. So the worst is going to happen. Eating disorders because you're trying to control things about about yourself because you don't like yourself. So there's a range of clinical problems that can be linked back to complex trauma. I was thinking as you were talking, you know, risky behavior in terms of sexual behavior and stuff yeah, can be part of that too, can't it? Or um, seeking seeking approval, maybe seeking seeking validation, possibly also not really having a good radar. And I think one of the things I see and I talk about this as well is the is the re-traumatization that happens a lot and I think that happens because people struggle to see risky behaviors because they've grown up with really poor behavior that's been normalized. So you don't have a good a good radar. You can't say that this person's harmful. I'm not going to have them in my life. Mm. And you might really desperately want to be loved and want want to belong and feel like that's all you're going to get. Mm. And that's, you know, often people say, well, why, why do these women keep ending up with these blokes or you know, vice yeah. versa and, or, you know. Choosing but making how bad choices. Can, how can you get in those positions more than very, once? It's very, very tricky because it's hard to see those behaviours sometimes at the start of relationships because if people behave like that, that on the first date, most people would walk out. Yeah. yeah. There's often a slowly escalating pattern and usually by that point in time you're in deeper and, you know, you might have you might have grown some feelings and it's, and it's hard to extricate. Mm-hmm. I think the pacing of relationships can be off sometimes so people move in together, maybe very quickly, which then just creates a level of structural things because yes. it's hard to move, especially in this housing market when yeah. you're sharing a lease. Mm. Um, really, really difficult, I think. And I think there can be a lot of victim blaming in the space, but there's also sometimes the, the opposite, which is the sense that people people don't don't have agency. And I think it's important to be, you know, compassionate, but but also be thinking about how we all have choices to make within our relationships and it's really important to be starting to think about safe choices. You do touch on um, differences, you know, cultural, our, our, our mode of dealing with um, family violence and stuff is very white. It's based yeah. on an American model that's yeah. decades old. The Duluth model. You talk about what, you know, you grew up in India yeah. for the first 12 years of your life and different. So, yeah, I think the cultural questions and certainly I think the family violence space is having to deal with that. And I see it come out in things like the course of control legislation where all of the white feminists I know and the and the white activists are really 
invested and think that that's going to be the answer to a lot of problems. But we know that a lot of Aboriginal people have been victimised by the police and are not going to go to the police. And for them to have this level of power given to the police to really start to make these decisions and to have all of the answers you know, reside only in the policing space with more laws is, is actually, it feels very, very threatening. Are you able to tell us a bit about the coercive, coercive control legislation that is being... I don't know um, where it's at in Victoria, mm. but I think, largely speaking, people are trying to legislate. So effectively, coercive control is a form of psychological abuse. So it's where you're trying to keep someone under your thumb, you're isolating, controlling... Controlling their money, controlling all of those things. So it's Which not is part of the family violence, violence legislation anyway, but I think they're thinking that if they have specific charges, that's actually going to prevent this. Mm. I don't know. I think that the that the jury's out. I think that family violence is certainly a policing issue, but I think it's a lot more than a policing issue as well. And I don't know if having more laws is going to help because we are not doing what enough with the current laws we have. I also think that giving the police the power to determine things like like who the perpetrator is and what's happening in terms of a more complex dynamic within a relationship. And this, is, this isn't a hit out at the police because I work very closely with them and they can be great, but they don't have psychological training. And it feels to me like you might be setting everyone up to have some difficult experiences and that it's going to provide a level of seeming security, but it won't actually change anything within the field. So I suppose those are my concerns about it in a relatively unpopular view because I know that a lot of people are pushing for it. I'm certainly open to seeing how it goes, but I don't think it's the answer to all of the issues we think. I've worked at a family violence service. I've helped friends go through the process and I've had difficulties in terms of psychological abuse within a, within a partial relationship myself. It's a complex and very difficult situation to be in. I think the coercive control legislation is going to have a really high threshold to prove, as as it should, because it's 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 a crime. But it's going to be tricky or, or interesting to see how it gets over the line and whether it actually protects anyone. Because even just looking at what the courts and police are doing now with intervention orders and, and the tools that they have, there's cracks in the system everywhere. And we aren't quite getting it right. And again, we're doing a lot of work in Victoria, so much work, and it's, and, it's, and it's really great to see, but we have a long way to go with the laws we do have. Yeah. yeah. I'm a senior member of Victoria Police, and I, I agree with you. I think, you know, I work with, we work with them a lot, and this particular individual I think is fantastic. And they said, oh, look, we've got one great stat is that of the people who take out intervention orders, we have very few of them engage with us again and take out further orders. And <laughs> What does that actually mean? <laughs> well, this person thought that was a really exactly. great stat. They thought that, that what that meant was that the, that intervention order solved, solved the problems. <laughs> yeah. But it could mean that someone found the process so hard that they actually chose not to go back to the police. Look, we know that intervention orders can be helpful for lots of people. And I think for a lot of perpetrators, it will actually stop them. Once, once they see that there's a court order in place, they will stop. I think what's really hard is that it's not the answer for everyone and sometimes they're used in just this really willy-nilly way where often the victim doesn't actually consent to the orders and then you've got this you've got the police putting orders in place which no one intends to adhere to and people being charged and sent to prison with with, with no actual understanding of what's happening within the relationship and the sorts of factors that might be needed to stop the violence happening. Mm. So they're a blunt weapon and we use them 
a lot like a chainsaw. Yeah. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Can you also talk to us about how these things can evolve then into behaviors like stalking, for example? You yeah. talk about stalking in the book because I read recently a statistic about how many Australians have experienced stalking. It's pretty high, isn't it? I can't remember it, off the top of my head. Yeah, it um, seems really high. But then, and it seems to have grown with social media. Yeah, because, because it makes it easy. It makes it really easy. We're telling everyone where we are all the time. Um, but also, it then. It, but then it made me think, well, hang on, who's doing all the stalking then? Yeah, because like that, you and I. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> that, that made me think. No well, comment. I think a lot of us have difficulties with boundaries and I think stalking, it, it can actually be quite easy to stalk because really the clinical definition is, you know, repeated unwanted intrusions that may cause a person apprehension of fear. So even things like sending someone repeated text messages that are vaguely threatening or nasty once they've asked for that to stop, if that goes on for long enough, that's, that's actually stalking. So I think text messaging as well as you know social media has made it easy because we don't have to we don't have to put effort into stalking. You yeah. know, you used to have to write a letter or you used to have to go to someone's house, whereas now you fire off a series of texts and if your emotions are dysregulated, which is what I see in most stalkers, you you very impulsively shoot these off yeah. because that makes you feel better, it makes you feel like you're taking action and bam, you've started stalking someone. And you can see things and react to them quickly, really quickly. Like the- Absolutely. And we can look at what our exes from 25 years ago are doing. Yes. And yeah. yeah. Yeah, you've got to really put some boundaries in there, you know, when you get curious and you're like, no, I don't need to know what yes, that person exactly. has done yeah. or is doing. To stop looking at people's, at people's social media oh, if it's they're so evoking hard. emotion. It, it is hard. In the case study you wrote in the book, you explained that the, the, the scenarios are like amalgams of people yeah. and you wrote one about a person who stalks. And, yeah. and one of the things that um, you mentioned was, you know, maybe is not a clue but a contributing factor, you know, form relationships really quickly. I'm always fascinated by that, you know, when you form a relationship quickly. Mm. I think that's one of the biggest things I've seen when I work with people who stalk. There's a history of really intense and very quick 
relationship formation and what we would colloquially call the love bombing style of things, Mm, which is you're so awesome, I want to spend lots and lots of time with you, which can sometimes speak to desperation to form relationships and not really filtering carefully, but also when that's then threatened because a person tries to end a relationship or pull away, Mm. lots of lots of emotion sweeps in, including anger and rejection. Using the term love bombing is taking me back to this idea that everyone's a narcissist. And that's, <laughs> and that's taking me back to the way you started this conversation, was, which is that there's a lot of false information yeah. available, that people are making a lot of money from their pseudo-psychology. Anecdotally, how many people do you think are diagnosing all their exes as narcissists and diagnosing themselves as having you know, major kind of uh, issues, traumas or or, or, um, ADHD or any of these things. You know, in the trauma world, I actually find people relatively on the money with saying to me, look, I have a history of trauma. Mm -hmm. What they often need my help with is putting things together and sifting through kind of the diagnostic stuff, which is important because it informs treatment planning. And again, as I talk about Diagnosis are just labels, really. They aren't. They aren't real things we can we can see in the world. I I don't see a lot of that. I see a lot of that on social media. My sense is that making the leap from social media to actually seeking therapy shows a level of commitment, and the people who actually come to therapy really want help, and they've known that things are wrong and often they'll use social media as a way to get some information and then come in to see me and go, hey, what do you think about this? So I I always use that as, you know, one of the sources of information. But if I just accepted self-report, I wouldn't be doing my job as a psychologist. No, Mm. absolutely not. Mm. And Um, your main concern with the proliferation of this and I've seen other people talk about it, is what, what, what are your professionals' concerns about it? It's inaccurate often. So just because you're a perfectionist doesn't necessarily mean you have a trauma history. Mm. Um, it's very simplistic and it often discounts things like things like differential diagnosis, which is a term that we use clinically, which basically means that we need to look at a range of disorders, a range of difficulties. So if a person comes in to see me and talks about intense anxiety, that might be trauma-related, but I also have to be filtering or screening for other things that might be personality disorder-related. It might be psychosis. And if you don't actually know all of this, and if you just fixate on trauma, because that's what's being shown to you through you know, the whole social media algorithm, you're, you're actually missing all of these things. And if you're not identifying what's causing your difficulties, then you're not going to get appropriate treatment. And that fundamentally is my disagreement with some of this information on social media, that it sends people down pathways that are not helpful. That's so important. It's Mm -hmm. like when people, say, uh, use drugs or have a dependence on alcohol, it's like, we'll just quit or just do that. But actually often there's an underlying issue. and and, And I just see now how the pieces fit together and how it's so important to get professional help. I think it really is because it's important to understand what might have happened to you, how that's changed who you are and the work that you need to do to put the pieces back back together. I don't know if just saying that I have a history of trauma is always going to be helpful in terms of giving you the answers because then the question is, well, what what now? Mm. And you can feel maybe like you're failing because if you're only looking at one piece of the puzzle and you're just like, I really want to stop drinking. I want to stop yeah, yeah. using, but I can't. I keep failing. And then you're made to feel like, 
well, you're not doing what you need to do exactly. properly rather than having... You come to yeah. a psychologist and, you know, you look at the fact that maybe you actually do have ADHD as well. That yes. it's not just trauma. Maybe it's also ADHD. Maybe you have a biological temperament, which makes you far more susceptible to gaining reward from that. There is a problem, though, which is that people, I think, that we're talking about tend to struggle with things like making appointments Absolutely. and sticking to them and oh, certainly the yeah. first one. Getting so, a referral letter. Yeah, this oh. is it. Look, so your heart, mental health system is so hard four, anyway. Right. Four, so right. your heart can be in it and you can yeah. make this decision time and time and yeah. time and time again. But first thing you have to do is get to your GP, yeah. get have the referral the money. letter. Have the, have the money. money. Do it. And I've made that first appointment so many times and never made it. And especially now we know yeah. that there's long waiting lists because yeah. so many more Australians are trying to access mental yeah. health care. Mm. So where are we at now, do you think, with that? Are there are yeah. still the really long waiting lists? Yeah. I think that, yeah, you raised a good point around how complex trauma or trauma or just any serious mental health issue can really make it hard for people to engage in therapy. And that's a conundrum I see a lot because it's really important for people to be coming to therapy. Otherwise, I can't help them. Mm. But if a person's very dysregulated, if they have a very unstable lifestyle, if they're using a lot of alcohol and drugs or they just can't remember appointments or when they get anxious, they they, they just avoid things, that often means that they, they're not coming to treatment. And so the first part of treatment for me is then engaging them and setting up some of those boundaries and setting up some expectations and the frame and really supporting them to see what the barriers are so they can come to treatment. And if I'm seeing them privately, Medicare expects I do that all and then treat their trauma in 10 sessions. Oh my God. Lovable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in terms of where we are at with the mental health system, I think it's very piecemeal at the moment. So there's huge, huge missing, missing middle. So people who are really acutely unwell, can go to hospital. They're often given episodic treatment. And I think we are doing a good job in Victoria in terms of bolstering the public system. But if you're not that unwell, you're not going to be treated by the public system and you're going to be discharged to the private system. Private system means you have the you have to have the capacity to pay privately and you only get the 10 subsidized sessions and you're then having to find your own practitioner. Within kind of regional areas, I think wait lists are still really high. I think in places like Sydney and Melbourne, where I'm based, wait lists seem to be dropping. And certainly I've had, had availability at various points in time. And most of my friends who are who are in the private field do. I think the trick is that not, not a lot of people know where to find these mm -hmm. psychologists. So unless GPs know about you or, or unless there's kind of the secret word of mouth referral pathway happening... Um, it's really hard for people to know where to find these practitioners. And that's what I always struggle with being at least partly in the private system, that there's a lot of people I can't service. There's a lot of people who can't afford my fees. There's a lot of people I won't be able to to help. And I think that's part of the difficulty of being this line of work, that you take responsibility for those you can help and you just have to accept that that you're not that you're not able to help a lot of people and i get yeah, around that by yeah no. and look i kind of manage my own you know, moral injury by doing a lot of work in the public system so yeah. i feel like i'm contributing i think that's yeah that that it's balancing it out because look for for anyone who seeks help it, it can be life-changing but yeah there's so many factors and you mentioned moral injury because i really took a lot of attention i have a family member who has been diagnosed with moral injury because they were in um 
a United Nations peacekeeping force mm. in Bosnia. Yeah. And very... And the atrocities, you would see. And Can very you hard. Explain yeah. it to us, please, both of you, yes. because I'd never heard of it before you yeah, um, told I, me that, I, Emily. I and then I've it. heard it um, again recently in a different context. I yeah. think it's a, it's a concept that's gaining... It's a concept that's attention. gaining attention. It's not a clinical diagnosis per se, but it can often come with PTSD or people who are first, first responders or people who who have to do things like work in prison. Look, my understanding is that largely it's when you're forced to act in ways or forced to engage or participate or witness things that go against your moral code. Mm. Um, so soldiers in war who have to kill people, you know, even simple things like working in prison as a, as a health professional where you're seeing people being treated in ways that are quite dehumanising. Or if you that in a prison a system of, where you're seeing people with complex mental health that are going untreated. Issues. Absolutely. Exactly. So I think working in the mental health system, at mm. least for me, just creates a constant level of, of moral injury because it's so under-resourced. And I'm not saying that we aren't trying. We are trying, and I think especially in Victoria, we're doing some great work around it, but there's a constant dissonance when I'm trying to find support for people mm. and I know the support isn't there and I'm sitting with that with that helplessness and that's a form of moral injury. Mm. And you write in your speak about that, about the vicarious trauma and moral injury and I thought yeah like you you challenge so many of the things that people get told like well it hasn't happened to you so why are you worrying yeah. about it or you should be able to switch off <laughs> and you you reference some cases um of people who have gone to court against mm. their employer yeah the solicitor Zagi Kosarov I think who took the Department of Public Prosecutions in Victoria because she got PTSD from working with the sex crimes mm. unit. And that's incredibly intense work. And a range of structural things should be in place around any any profession like that. But certainly as a psychologist, I can say that until I'd say over the past couple of years, we haven't really talked about these concepts, even, even within the psych field. There's just this idea that you're going to be fine. Mm. You're choosing to, to do this job. You know how to handle it. Mm. And mm. that's not true because... This is this is a difficult line of work and I have a lot of training and I'm thinking about people like, you know, people who work in prisons or corrections officers, the police, the defence force, child protection. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a minefield. Yeah. Oh, child protection. I mean, I can't imagine you going into situations, not all the time, but a lot of the time where you know yeah. the child is like not getting what they need or the parents can't do and it. And the parents aren't getting what they need yeah, exactly. sometimes. Not so this intergenerational support. trauma. Yeah. And I just think I actually, that would keep me up at night. But imagine then being told, first, your caseload is probably double what it should be. Yeah, absolutely. And you're being asked to split your focus and you're being told that you have to work overtime mm -hmm. and then you're being told that if this ends up in front of the coroner's court, you're going to be on the stand and it's going to be your fault. Because that's the experience of people who work in child protection and that's why the burnout rates are so high. And this is about the system. This is this is not about the work itself being really traumatic, which it it is. But I think if people have access to supervision and debriefing, if they can actually go home at 5 p.m. and switch off, if they're mm. supported to take leave, then the level of burnout isn't, isn't going to build up. But that certainly having talked to people who've worked in the field, they've built up years and years of leave because they just haven't been, no. been able to take leave. And then they burn out and leave and yeah. the churn continues. And that's a culture in, um, that's, that's in a culture. the workplace, isn't it, with certain jobs or careers where really ultimately if something doesn't get done, it's really not that big a deal. But there's this culture around toxic, oh, I love the word toxic too. Toxic is another toxic word like gaslighting, yeah. isn't it? Um, but you know that culture yeah. that is built 
you know, it, it's from the top down often or there's tricky people in the workplace. Yeah. I think and the hard thing is though in certain in certain workplaces like medicine and child protection, there are things that are absolutely time critical mm. and that have to be done and a lot weighing on the individual person. Yeah. But we also need to understand that, that, that individual people have very, very finite limits. Yeah. And I don't think we do at this point in time and our systems just aren't well, well resourced enough. No, and they don't pay people enough to do this. They don't pay jobs. people enough. I always say you couldn't pay me enough to work in child protection, no. uh, which, I've, which I've done, by the way, and it was incredibly hard. And I came out, I think, with a level of PTSD. Yeah, I'm sure. Mm. Because the other thing is that absolutely well aware of the fact that if something goes wrong, if the worst happens, they'll be blamed. That's what people I've worked with were told directly that if yeah. this that if that if you make the wrong call, you're gonna be up in front of the coroner's court. And mm-hmm. you know, keeping in mind that the people hearing this were young twenty one year old women oh straight gosh. out of university. Who are there for what reason? They're there because they want they to They want to make a difference. Help people. Absolutely. There's no other reason. There and is then it, the and, pay isn't great. There's and then you're told that if this baby dies, it's oh, going to be your fault. Absolutely. Oh, God. It's too and much. we all contribute to, to this blaming culture, yes. I think, yep. because as soon as a death happens, the media jumps on it saying, yes. why wasn't child protection yep. doing enough? And I acknowledge that there are often massive, massive failings. And I know that child mm. protection specifically have, have, have had lots of cases that they've closed where they shouldn't and they don't have some good risk screening processes in place yeah. often. But... At the same time, it can't it can't come down to that question no. around this is this is your fault. The organisation must must have your back, and I think we all need to accept that there's a level of risk inherent in all of these you know situations that can't always be mitigated perfectly. No, but I always say that it to me it comes down to funding, all yeah. of these things mm. to, to funding to support families to. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support yeah. early Before things Absolutely. escalate to that point. And then yeah. to support yeah. the department, to, to support the workers in the department and, uh, you know, yeah. all of those things. And that is tax and no one wants to pay tax. No, everyone wants tax cuts. I tell but, you, I yeah. really happily pay my tax. Me, because, me, too. me too. Yeah. And that's a level of where other people's rights start to kind of conflict with your responsibilities. And I think it's important for us to balance rights and responsibilities. Thanks to Dr. Ahona Guha. Her book is Reclaim, Understanding Complex Trauma and Those Who Abuse. Call Lifeline on 13 11 14 if you need to talk to someone after listening to this episode. Or there's 13 Yarn, a crisis support for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. We'll have details in the show notes on these and other support services 
as well as where you can follow Ahona on social media. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. Australian True Crime, the nation's leading independent true crime podcast, is hitting the road with our live show. We're coming to Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane this July and tickets will be available starting May 10th at 9.30am sharp. They sold out in two hours last time, so do not dilly-dally. We know the suburbs of Australia are teeming with some of the most intriguing and chilling true crime stories the world has ever heard. Don't miss the chance to dive deeper and get involved with a live Q&A. With over a million and a half downloads monthly, these tickets will sell out. So keep an eye on our social media pages and check the podcast bio for direct links to purchase yours as soon as they're released on Friday, May 10. I can't wait to see you there.